Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts. This is Episode 70 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. Been doing a lot of traveling lately. I think we both have. You by air and <laughs> me by land. Well, it sounds like you're being a bit more environmentally friendly than I am then these days, Max, because as you know, air travel is under scrutiny for that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But yes, I've had the pleasure of flying a fair bit lately and um, some really good experiences. I made my uh, way to Ireland and and then to France for a Talis event, and um, it was really nice. But I'm glad to be home for the holidays. It's always nice to be home. (laughs) Yes. All right, well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories making headlines. First, Boeing's woes continue as the airframer announced it will suspend 737 MAX production starting in January 2020. In a statement, Boeing said its decision is driven by a number of factors, including the extension of certification into 2020, the uncertainty about the timing and conditions of return to service and the global training approvals, and the importance of ensuring that Boeing can prioritize the delivery of stored aircraft. And they do have a lot of stored aircraft. Uh, oh, yeah. Roughly 400 undelivered planes. A Reuters report I saw recently said that they estimated it would take a year to deliver all the aircraft in storage. Now, of course, previously Boeing reduced the production rate from 52 a month to 42 a month. But it's a financial drain. Boeing certainly is taking a cash flow hit with this grounding. And so just the other day, the Boeing board met, decided to pause production. Now, they note that workers will be redeployed, not laid off. This is kind of an interesting and not particularly easy task ahead of them, I think, also, um, I read in John Ostrower's The Air Current, John Ostrower, of course, being my second favorite aviation journalist, <laughs> but uh, he he wrote a piece where he talked about, well, a number of different things on this topic, but also three things that are driving this prolonged process of getting the aircraft back in the air, one being a software audit that hasn't started yet. Another being the jet's final certification flight hasn't occurred yet. And also, the Joint Operational Evaluation Board review is complicated a bit by some recent pilot trials of the revised 737 MAX software. Now, the crews were tested on how they reacted to different flight control scenarios, and all of the pilots got out of trouble But interestingly, not always with the correct procedures. So that adds that complication. Meanwhile, we have a report in the Seattle Times. This is by Dominic Gates and Lewis Cam. And they report on the U.S. House Committee hearing where the FAA judged that after the Lion Air crash, there was a high risk of additional Boeing 737 MAX accidents, but the FAA allowed the aircraft to keep flying. In fact, they calculated about one crash every three years during the life of the 737 MAX worldwide fleet. Oh, Mary, I don't know if it can get any worse than this, but what are you hearing? 
Yeah, well, I, I, that uh, report regarding the FAA's internal analysis, um, Max, that really is having an impact with even kind of non-frequent flyers. That's a story that has spread for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting to me that folks that say wouldn't be regularly uh, on aircraft are, are talking about that particular report. And that is keeping uh, sort of the concerns ever present, shall we say, uh, with the MAX situation. On the PAXX supplier front, which you know we cover a lot about um, – at Runway Girl Network, they are still largely assessing the impact of this latest news, and they're awaiting additional information from Boeing. Now, some of them are not willing to go on record just yet. Others are pointing journalists to their most recent earnings conference calls for some semblance of guidance around the grounding. But keep in mind that many suppliers were hoping to see the MAX re-enter service by no later than early next year. And that's clearly not going to happen now, and it feels like anyone's guess as to when the situation will be remedied. Um, so some of the most prominent PAX-X suppliers include Collins Aerospace, now, of course, part of UTC. And in addition to providing seats and lavatories and other aircraft interiors to the MAX, it supplies the avionics, the sensors, landing systems, electric power generation, wheels and brakes, to name just some of its profound nose-to-tail content on board the MAX. So whereas Colin's success in securing so much business on this aircraft MAX was really laudable and exciting when it all happened, um, it could be seen as materially exposing Collins now that the program is suffering, um, which is probably a story in its own right. Um, another company that delivers multiple passenger experience products to the MAX is Astronics. And then uh, that company supplies passenger service units, optional in-seat power. Of course, they're the leader in in-seat power. So uh, their, their kit is on a lot of aircraft, including the MAX. And they also supply exterior lighting to the aircraft type. And I reached out to Astronics uh, and, in fact, to a number of in-flight connectivity providers on the MAX to understand if they're going to slow down or stop production of hardware uh, for the aircraft, and if not, if they have storage plans in light of this latest news. And it seemed like a reasonable question, because if you cast your mind back to when the 787 program was delayed, uh, some PAXX hardware sat on shelves for years, and we only really fully appreciated the gravity of the situation when the first 787s rolled off the line with prior generation seats and IFE Max. <laughs> and I remember doing a blog about it and comparing kind of newly retrofitted aged wide bodies to the brand new 787 and the aged wide bodies, for example, having uh, newer kit on board uh, than the brand new 787. So it has an impact when you have to start storing up this hardware in a number of in a number of ways, including uh, you know, if this aircraft were to, to be grounded for a materially longer period of time, uh, what that means to the generation of PAXX kit that is supposed to go on board. Um, but Astronics is among the firms uh, telling us it has insufficient information at present to fully assess the impact of the MAX production suspension. So this is all brand new information, mm. <laughs> including to the suppliers. Um, and Astronix says it plans to provide an update to its expectations once more information from Boeing is available. And this uh, messaging is in sync with the CNN report out uh, that says suppliers are waiting for more info from Boeing. So analysts, meanwhile, believe that Boeing is going to have to provide some sort of financial support to its suppliers to ensure they're ready when production of the 737 MAX starts up again. 
which is interesting as well in its own right, because then it gets even more expensive when you have to help your supply chain, Max. Yes. And this is the key question. Is Boeing going to ask the suppliers to discontinue shipments to Boeing or are they going to you know, continue to accept them or at a reduced rate? Uh, but this just kind of ripples through the entire industry and the economy, too. This is uh, you know, a big component of the total GDP we're talking about here. And it's not just Boeing, but uh, many, many of these suppliers are going to be impacted. And Boeing certainly doesn't want to see them fall into financial difficulty such that they end up closing up shop and Boeing losing losing the supplier. That's for darn sure, Max. And I have to say, now just personally, this is just my opinion, but there feels like something karmic happening here. Um, back in 2012, I broke the story, believe it or not, that Boeing had implemented a new policy that would see many of its suppliers pay recurring royalty fees in exchange for interfacing with the airframer's intellectual property. And at the time, the practice was fairly unprecedented in the aviation industry, and the suppliers I spoke to all those years ago said it represented a fundamental shift in the revenue model. And Boeing played down the move, saying it was not uncommon for technology industries to uh, achieve royalties in the use of their IP. So they were kind of uh, taking a very Apple type of model Mm. (laughs) to their aircraft. And then in the ensuing years, a lot has been written about Boeing's so-called Partnering for Success program. Um, and what Bloomberg in 2018 called Partnering for Success 2.0, which was uh, a further price cut squeeze under the new leadership of Dennis Muhlenberg. So long story short, these suppliers have <coughs> spent a fair amount of coin, mm. <laughs> shall we say, and taken um, some squeezes over the years. Um, and so if analysts are right and Boeing has to now provide some sort of financial support to suppliers, I can just imagine the paperwork alone seems dizzying. You know, you pay us, you know, 15 percent. Yes. We'll pay you this amount. I mean, the back and forth just on the paperwork alone, just it, it, it's wild, really, and stunning. It is. I think that there are just many, many implications of uh, this whole scenario that are going to reverberate for years to come. And I think one of them is or could be the relationship between Boeing and its suppliers. And there may grow to become different kind of relationships as a result of this. Certainly, there may be different relationships between the airframer and its customers as well, as well as you know the FAA uh, and the airframer and Boeing. And so I think we're looking to many, many years of new processes, changes, Maybe some of them will be reactionary. Maybe some of them are uh, well-deserved. But I see that uh, the Flyers' rights group is weighing in on this as well. Yeah, they are. Um, You know, they've been vocal on a number of hot topics in the passenger experience space over the last several years. Of course, uh, more recently, uh, before the max grounding, uh, they were they had a lot of messaging and and pushing the FAA on uh, the situation with ultra tight seating configurations, which, of course, we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, The latest from them, certainly on Twitter, at least, is that they appear to be calling for a permanent grounding of the max. And it's garnering a fair amount of amens from the flying public on Twitter, at least. But I will say this, that we cannot judge the public based on what Twitter is saying. If the recent UK elections tell us anything, it is that Twitter is just one of many avenues and don't make all your assessments about what's happening in our society based on Twitter. But it is fascinating to see 
A lot of passengers, of course, don't relish the idea of boarding a MAX, even if it is recertified. Uh, that is the very hard fact. Um, and of course, the report that you mentioned again about the FAA's analysis is truly shocking. Yes. And perhaps more than anything, passengers are concerned about the regulatory oversight or lack of oversight. Um, and then kind of in, in a strange, ironic twist, purely from a comfort standpoint, take safety off the table, purely from a comfort standpoint, the MAX has not showered itself in glory. So before the grounding, it, the MAX was perhaps best known as being the aircraft with lavatories so tiny that some passengers had difficulty entering and exiting them <laughs> and even executing proper hygiene. <laughs> oh, no. So it's not like passengers are pining for the MAX and banging the door down saying this is an aircraft I want to fly from just a pure comfort standpoint. And it begs the question whether airlines will seek to improve comfort on the MAX once it's recertified in a bid to try and attract passengers to the type. I do kind of wonder that. But what do you think about the flyer's rights stance? Do you think, first of all, a permanent grounding, that's, that would be huge. And as you say, yeah. this is an economic, you know, even at present with what is happening, there's going to be a, a, an impact on the economy. What do yes. you think about permanent grounding? I, I don't think that's going to happen. Boeing is too big and important to the U.S. economy to fail. And the 737 MAX is the bulk of the Boeing orders and cash flow. The 737 MAX can't fail either, in my opinion. So it has to be returned to service, but only after the design changes are safely implemented, which includes training, and public confidence is restored. Now, obviously, that can't be rushed and it has to be executed perfectly. If Boeing doesn't get it right, Boeing is going to be in some serious, serious trouble. But along the way, I think there's three things that need to be addressed, at least from my perception looking from the outside. The things that need to be addressed include Boeing's safety culture. The indications are that we in not only the 737 MAX, but in some other programs as well, that the Boeing safety culture seems to be not operating as it needs to. That's one. The other is the relationship between Boeing and the regulator. There are indicators that that relationship needs to be examined a little bit, uh, maybe modified, and most importantly, I think, something put in place that audits that relationship to make sure that we don't get into a cozy kind of manufacturer and regulator relationship. And then there's also the inter, or the international reputation of the FAA. That's been significantly damaged, and I think that needs to be needs to be addressed. So, I mean, th those are the things. Those are not small tasks. They're they're really huge. But uh, again, I think it's it's critical that they get resolved uh, in a positive way and in a way that lets uh, the flying public. Uh, continue, let's uh, Boeing continue with the 737 MAX. It can't be grounded permanently. There is no other alternative for, for Boeing, not for years and years. That's kind of the way that I look at it. Okay. Interesting. Of course, Airbus, of course, uh, doing rather well right now. Sure. Um, and of course, benefiting, um, though it remains uh, very cautious with its wording. It, it does not wish this on, on Boeing or indeed any other airframer at all, but um, in a very nice position, obviously. Sure. With the, yeah. uh, with the A320. And speaking of the A320neo, anyway, I see that Spirit Airlines has a brand new cabin on that aircraft. It features new slimline seats, 
They're being heralded as offering a far better usable legroom. Now, Mary, when I think of legroom, I think of uh, David Vanderhoof and I think of you. Have you had, <laughs> have you had a chance to sit in the seat? What do you think of it? Uh, yeah, I did. I had a chance at the Apex Expo this fall uh, in Los Angeles. And just for those listeners who may be new to this podcast, I am uh, just shy of six foot tall and I'm rather long in the leg, shall we say. Um, so I, I, I feel the legroom pinch most acutely, Max, <laughs> uh, like other fellow tall humans. Um, and I have to say bravo to Spirit Airlines with respect to this usable legroom factor. So this is a slimline seat in the truest sense. Uh, the seat maker is called Acro Aircraft Seating, and that's actually the incumbent seat maker at Spirit. But they have gone above and beyond to carve out a lot of knee and shin space to ensure passengers have legroom, even in these seats that are pitched out of what is considered a very snug 28 inches. That's a real low-cost carrier seat pitch, Max. Mm. Um, and the end result is that someone like myself can indeed fit into the seat all right with a bit of even a bit of room uh, for your knees. Um, I, I measured about having about an inch uh, of movement. Okay, that's not something to write home about or, or, or whatnot, but it in a low cost carrier configuration is impressive. So bravo to Spirit. They did well on that. Um, and they can rightfully tout that there's more usable legroom on this seat despite the tight pitch. Um, I also found that the lumbar support was greatly improved, Max. And this is, of course, something I'd like to see more of in general. Far too often, airlines roll out brand new seats without actually considering lumbar support. And the end result is that I often find myself having to stuff a sweatshirt down behind my lower back to get a bit of support. And you don't have to do this here. At least, at least I didn't feel that. I felt that nice lumbar support in this, in this new seat. Um, the area that might prove a little bit disconcerting for the Spirit Airlines passenger, well, is kind of twofold. Number one, uh, the window and the aisle seats are 17 inches. Now, that's more akin to what you'd see on a Boeing 737. Uh, but the middle seats are 18 inches. So uh, Spirit and Acro have done something rather clever here in that they've shaved kind of almost an inch off of window and aisle. Uh, but given that extra width to the middle seat passenger uh, to give them just a little bit more space. Base. But your head is still fairly close to the seat back in front of you. So the eyeball to seat back space is the bit where I think that some passengers may have a little bit of an issue if you're a claustrophobic person. Because I felt like the seat, whilst I had plenty of legroom, it's kind of the magic of these new slim lines. There's also a slim line in uh, Europe uh, from a company called Jevon that does something very similar, where you get all this legroom in a tight seat pitch, but your face is pretty close to the seat back in front of you. Um, and again, if you're the type of person that, uh, you know, does not like a closed in feeling, if you get a bit claustrophobic, that might be an issue. If that's not an issue for you, then you might celebrate the fact that you're, you've technically got more usable legroom on this seat. Um, interestingly enough, Max, we've talked about it a bit before in the past from a safety perspective. Some believe that, uh, that having the seats closer to the passenger in economy class is in fact a safer situation because if you're in a survivable accident, uh, you know, you'll hit the seat in front of you faster and it'll wow. break your trajectory forward as a sort of crumple zone. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that th those arguments are actually being made on the tight seating configuration front. But long story short, um, what Spirit has done here is very notable. They can rightly make the claim of more usable legroom. Um, 
But again, if you if you have issues with kind of enclosed spaces, um, this might be an issue. Hmm. I'd like to invest in the guest a little uh, statement there is a, an objective of theirs. I think it's kind of a clever, uh, a clever idea. Hopefully they can deliver on it. Yeah, they, they use the word guest a lot in their press release um, about this new cabin, um, which is – it's actually quite nice. <laughs> it's nice to hear. The guest sounds really nice. Um, and they, they are investing in the guest. And one way that they're doing that is investing in high-speed in-flight connectivity, which really serves as a great distraction when passengers are seated in tight seating configurations, um, as does in-flight entertainment systems uh, serve as a great distraction. Um, but unfortunately, Spirit's connectivity rollout is delayed because of problems with the Talus antenna uh, that they have installed on roughly 10 aircraft. Now, Spirit spoke to us about the issue during this Apex Expo, and then uh, RGN contributor Jason Rabinowitz received an update this week in Detroit from management, um, which said, and, and management said that these aircraft are going to have to um, have their antennas replaced. And that's a major hiccup for the program, um, which has shown a lot of promise, and a lot of passengers are eager to get connected on Spirit flights. Um, so it's unfortunate, but the Spirit is definitely investing in the guest, but then there are other techni- technical hurdles <laughs> that are preventing it from rolling out those improvements uh, in the near term. Um, so that's something to think about if you really require connectivity when you fly. I noticed they have their capitalized big front seats trademark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, I know. And I, I, I like that idea. I, I'm getting old, Mary, and I've yep. got money. So I'm not <laughs> particularly interested in the lowest cost seat. Yeah. Now, I mean, I don't need to be coddled, but I expect some level of comfort. So uh, between the, uh, you know, the coach, slim, thin, close <laughs> seats in the back, I think I might be more attracted to those big front seats. Oh, amen to that. Max, I'm right there with you. Um, in fact, when I flew to Ireland recently, I was on Aer Lingus's new A321neo. And um, it was really interesting. I flew economy class there and I flew business on the return. And economy I found to be quite tight, to be completely candid with you. Um, I, I felt like the experience was, was difficult for a six-hour flight. And I thought to myself, gosh, you're getting old, Mary. <laughs> you just, you can't suck up six hours in economy. But it was, I felt, you know, I didn't feel 100% off getting off that aircraft. And, um, and of course, the return in business um, was phenomenal, to be honest with you. The, was, the difference was like night and day. It was definitely worth the cost of the upgrade, which is a very reasonable uh, 1,200 euro to be, to get you into another cabin. It's, huh. That's a nice, nice little benefit that Aer Lingus has. They make the, the business class upgrade affordable for many, shall we say. Um, but, uh, but I am, I'm right there with you, Max. I, I do need a bit of space and increasingly, uh, I can't really fathom flying long haul without being at least in a premium, a true, a premium economy seat. I flew EasyJet recently, um, within France, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, I found that to be a very, very tight situation. And in fact, I took a picture and I shared it on Instagram of uh, these individuals whose legs, a lot of men did not fit in the seats. And so their legs, you know, they got their legs out in the aisle Mm. to get a bit of relief. And then you had a lot of passengers that were in man spread mode, which is is not that nice. You know, when you got about a bunch of man spreaders, women spreaders, (laughs) you know, but it's desperate times, desperate situations, you know, desperate measures. And, um, 
you know, I certainly was sticking my foot out into the aisle as well. So yeah, it, it, it's not that ultra low cost model is not one that I seek out. And I personally, I, I sometimes find when I price things out, the unbundled experience doesn't really come in cheaper than a lot of the kind of more traditional carriers. <laughs> you know, when you, t- when you add all those bits up, it kind of is often very, very similar in pricing. So, um, but with that said, you know, there's an awful lot of people that are flying spirit. And um, I think some of these improvements and certainly some of the, 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 the planned improvements once uh, technological hurdles are surmounted um, will uh, be seen as a real plus for those flyers. Yes. Well, earlier, Mary, you mentioned flight shaming, and it seems that movement's picking up steam. I think it really originated in Sweden, and of course, it discourages air travel, particularly for short-haul trips. Now, aviation contributes over 2% to the global carbon dioxide emissions, and prominent young climate activist Greta Thunberg is giving travelers a lot to think about. In fact, as people vowed to shun flying this year, Al Jazeera called it the Greta effect. I think that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Well, airlines are stepping up. Uh, They're looking at their uh, eco-credentials and they're enacting a number of green initiatives. Some have invested in sustainable fuel plants, some committed to use greater percentages of biofuel, and others are seeking to eliminate single-use plastics on board or to dramatically reduce waste through the help of technology. But one operator, Wizair, a budget carrier, has attracted headlines recently. It called for a global ban on business class in the name of reducing the carbon footprint of flying business. The idea is those, those bigger, more spacious uh, seats take up space and that increases the carbon footprint per passenger. So, Mary, what do you, what do you think about this uh, idea from Wizz Air? Oh, Wizz Air. I'm a little suspect about this proposal from this budget <laughs> carrier, Max. Okay, so is it sort of a deflection from the fact that many of its own flights are short haul and travelers could find alternative means of getting to their destination? I mean, is this a clever response to the flight shame movement? Kind of point the fig- finger at something or someone else. So for me, if Wizz Air had a successful business class product and told the world it would no longer offer it in the name of improving its environmental credentials, that would carry a hell of a lot more weight than what appears to be from this vantage point, a bit of a marketing ploy. Again, that's my opinion, but that's what it appears to be. Now, let's also unpack Wizz Air's proposal further. What does the carrier propose for passengers of size or reduced mobility who might need a business class seat? Does it believe these people should not fly? Now, we're told that low-cost travel has meant the democratization of travel, and yet so many people are unwilling or unable now, Max, to fly due to the cramped conditions that we talk so much about. So for me, for Wizz Air to ignore this segment of the traveling population seems out of touch at best because it is not only your I guess they want to make it seem like your elite traveler flying business. That's not the only person flying business. There's a lot of people of size that simply do not fit in economy class seats and have to find the ways and means to get up front if they want to fly and need to fly, Max. Yes. Well, with all of the attention on this topic these days, uh, airlines really are, I think, trying to be at least perceived as responding to the the challenges of our environment. And I, I think we see a lot of hype in some cases. This might fall into that category. 
I mean, uh, clearly we should be taking action, but I, I don't know. I would like to see a little bit more thought into the calculations of which mode or modes of transportation provides, you know, what kind of carbon footprint. Uh, because I, I just don't think that that we have a good handle on that. Uh, a lot of times you don't see a complete accounting for all of the factors that go into the entire life cycle of the of the transportation mode. Um, in other words, you might see uh, people who drive electric cars say, say that there's zero emissions. Well, there was some energy expended to generate that electricity that charged those batteries. You know, a- as an example, I think we need to see a little bit more consideration. Another aspect of this, I think, is that I don't think the United States is, I'll say, caught up or is viewing the crisis in the same way that uh, is taking place in Europe. So, uh, you know, actions, solutions in Europe, uh, I think that in the United States, anyway, there's a lot more skepticism. I think we're farther away from seeing more concrete action. Uh, very much agreed on that front. And of course, our administration um, might have something to do with that as well in terms of, you know, environment getting a bit of a backseat approach Mm. (laughs) in general. Um, Let's just say uh, I don't see much leadership on that front uh, by example. Um, But some of these airlines are actually taking the bull by the horns. Uh, I recently attended United Airlines Media Day. I was pretty impressed by their messaging around what they're doing and trying to do to reduce wastage on board. They have some some key programs um, and also to have a more sustainable fuel situation. And they're one of the carriers that are investing on that front. Is it a way to have the messaging ready to head off the arguments at the pass, Max, because it's going to eventually jump the pond um, in a more meaningful way? Um, Is it smart business? Maybe it's a little bit of everything. Um, United executives that I spoke to in Chicago seem genuine, though, in their interest in in having um, a more eco-friendly operation. Um, But, you know, meanwhile, the point that was made during an earlier podcast remains true. The environment is, in fact, taking a hit right now due to the fact that the much more efficient narrow body that is the Boeing 737 MAX is grounded. And as you say, 400 aircraft. Mm. Um, That MAX was a big part of the narrative around that airlines had about being more environmentally friendly and replacing gas guzzling uh, narrow bodies. And so that narrative is grounded right now along with the MAX, um, uh, which is kind of interesting again in its own right. And I guess brings us back full, serv- uh, full, full circle to the max, max, which <laughs> is, um, will you be on board uh, the max when it re-enters revenue service? Yes, I think it'll be about the safest airplane out there. After all of the scrutiny, all of the uh, design changes and so forth, I don't think that it is a fundamentally flawed aircraft that is in a hopeless situation. And I think that, again, after the attention that it's gotten, uh, that uh, it'll there'll be no reason not to fly on that aircraft. Okay. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Runway Girl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience 
Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. And if you don't yet subscribe to this podcast, we encourage you to do that so you'll know as soon as each episode is released. And it's easy. Just search for PaxX Podcast in any podcast app. And be sure to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. 